you would, turn with me to the book of the Revelation. We're going to look at chapter 2, the first part of chapter 2 today. But I figure the best context we could hope for in setting this chapter up is to just read chapter 1 that we've been hearing about over the past few weeks. So let's begin with that. We're going to read Revelation chapter 1 to begin. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on the account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, the complete word of God that we have. Uh, We thank you for... Um, every piece of it, and uh, this morning as we uh, look closely at uh, the conclusion, the capstone, the, the, the finishing 
uh, portion of the scripture here. We pray that we would uh, carefully understand it and rightly divide it and um, not be caught up in many of the fanciful and additional and strange things that we can uh, find as we as we study this book, but that we would, as our uh, brother said the other week, um, read it for what it says and, and understand it as it as it says and and um, that you would by your spirit allow us to do that to read what is there and understand that it means what it says and help us to do that this morning um, anything that I say that is not uh, of the spirit and that is not correct I pray that we would forget it um, and that only your truth and your word uh, would be imprinted upon our hearts and minds and we ask all these things in Christ's name amen so John is on the island of Patmos and this amazing vision of the Lord Jesus uh, has come to him and ha- has given this uh, expectation of what's about to be told to him. And it's going to be these, these letters to the seven churches um, in the area here. Now, very quickly, um, just a quick reiteration of, I believe that this was when Jamel spoke a few weeks ago, about different ways that people can interpret or understand uh, Revelation. Um, and we won't spend too much time, I won't even go as long as he did um, on it, uh, which was not very long for the chuckles that I hear, but even quicker. Uh, just a real quick reminder for those who who who'd, uh, heard that and retained a little bit of it. I just want to bring that back up to the surface real quick here. Um, there's a perspective on Revelation called the preterist perspective, and this is basically the idea that this is all uh, completed in the past and done, and we're just looking at things that have already happened. There's a perspective called the idealist, and this sort of overly, in my opinion, overly symbolizes um, the things that we read in Revelation, that they are all just symbols and um, concepts, and none of it has any true connection. And the, the, the idealist might even just say that this is just a general depiction of good versus evil. And then where I, uh, and I believe most of our um, speakers thus far fall, would be in in mostly a perspective called futurist, meaning uh, especially from chapter 4 and on, we're looking at things that are yet to come, prophecy, things that are are yet coming. Uh, And of course, there are more ways to break these down and and subgroups and subdivisions. But for the most part, we want to understand um, that we we believe the book of Revelation is a book of prophecy uh, of things to come. starting in, in chapter 4. What we're looking at right now is the the letters that John is going to be writing to the seven churches. Now, the seven churches, right, if we can see, I don't know if my mouth shows up, um, but the island of Patmos here, um, off the coast of Asia Minor here, this is where John is receiving this vision. And if you see uh, the little seven red dots up there just north of that, these are the seven churches that were mentioned in chapter 1. And these next few chapters, we're only going to look at two of them, or, or two of the letters, rather, uh, in chapter 2 today, almost make a, a postal route, you could call it. Sort of, this is how the letters would have even been delivered, right? Ephesus, Smyrna, up to Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Um, these dots look pretty close, but between the two that we're looking at today, Ephesus and Smyrna is about a 40-mile uh, space there. Um, there's many other churches that were in Asia Minor, uh, but these were the seven that were selected. So why were these seven the churches that were selected? With so many to choose from, these weren't even necessarily all uh, stand-up exemplary churches. Well, there are 
suggested by some three different meanings or interpretations that we can take from these churches. The first two, I would say, are very clear. The first one is that these were churches that were contemporary in John's day, and these were the ones that the Spirit of God chose to write these letters to. The second idea is that what the Spirit of God has to tell these churches is sort of the the summation, the uh, sufficient uh, notice for all the churches that we have now today, right? If you look at the problems or the, um, the good works that we see in churches today, most of it, I don't know if I would say all of it, but it, it is things that we see in these seven churches, right? So they make a good representation of the churches that, that we have today, and we can apply that uh, to the churches today. These are, these are good lessons for churches today. And even to individuals, as we'll see, each of these letters uh, has a portion that says, he who has uh, an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is an individual application in here that we can glean as well. And there's a third major suggestion about what these seven churches represent. And that would be the churches of history. Now, there are some caveats with this and some some caution to be had when we when we uh, uh, make our way through history and then look back and say ah this is what prophecy was talking about that's very very delicate ground to tread upon because it's very easy to to see history and then say oh i can make this fit in this prophecy right the, the, the safest ground to stand on for prophecy is that which is interpreted clearly and explained in the scripture. However, this is a very big, uh, popular perspective, and there's some merit to it. Um, I wouldn't, again, as I think everyone has said so far when they've spoken on Revelation, it's not something I would be dogmatic about, um, but it is worth taking a quick glance at. So the seven churches, in the order that they are written to, uh, could at least in our understanding, and, and maybe not, again, I wouldn't say explicitly this is the the, the Spirit of God's intention for us, uh, but we can look back through the, the, the church history and sort of see different periods of time that line up with these churches. And even the names of these churches have meanings that could be uh, associated with these periods of time. The first church that we're, is being written to here is Ephesus, and this would be considered um, the the apostolic church period, right? Those who were uh, extremely closely tied to Christ, um, and that's about from 30 to the year 100. Um, and e- each of these church names can also sort of tie into the- these periods of time. Um, desired, right? The, 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 the way the church was intended to be laid out. But even after a few years, as we'll see from these letters, the church very quickly went off track, right? This is some, some of these letters to churches that had that Christ within a generation or two are, are way off track. Um, Smyrna means myrrh, and myrrh is a, a spice that was used for burial, and it would be crushed and release a sweet fragrance. So Smyrna represents, or Smyrna is, in the letter, a persecuted church. And you could uh, line that up with a period from 100 to about 313, uh, where there was extreme persecution of the church. Um, until, that is, a leader, Constantine, uh, rose to power, and he was the first leader that made Christianity, if you would, became in vogue, right? So all of a sudden, Christianity became the religion of the state. Um, And Pergamum means thoroughly married, right? Two things joined together. Um, But that is not necessarily God's intention for the church, right? To be part of the state, to be 
uh, run by the government, uh, rather the Holy Spirit. Thyatira um, was a period of time, or could, could correlate to a period of time, where the church began to separate uh, clergy and laity, right? They tried to create uh, a strict governments now within the church. We see a lot of that kind of in, in the way the Catholic church uh, functions. And, and one of the reasons that that period of time, 590 to the 1500s, um, was considered uh, the separation of clergy and laity was because they were they were so afraid the 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 leaders of the churches or some churches were so afraid that the average person might spill some of the cup and they believed that that cup transubstantiated that means really truly became the blood of Christ and they were so afraid that someone might spill the cup that they said we're not going to let these people hold the cup we're going to give it to them and thyatira means perpetual sacrifice right that's one of the problems we have with uh, theologies that believe in the, the transubstantiation, the notion that Christ is continuously being sacrificed when the scripture tells us that he came once for all made a sacrifice. 1500s, we have Martin Luther, and he, he begins this period of the church that is reformed, right? And, and Sardis means those escaping, right? So if we wanted to tie that to a period in church history, we could see that the, the, the separation, the moving away from the, the Catholic state church, uh, those escaping from that. And then in Philadelphia is the missionary church. Philadelphia means brotherly love. And uh, the 1700s up till the early 1900s, um, you could make the case, I suppose you could deny the case as well, that there was this great uh, a missionary activity and outreach and an openness in the world uh, to the message of God. And then the church of Laodicea, uh, would be considered the apostate church. This is the lukewarm church. And Laodicea means people ruling, right? Sort of this notion of democratic government now is how the church functions. Many churches have sort of people voting and deciding on things. So many of these periods of church history, whether they're closely associated with these seven letters or not, show uh, uh, faults and errors in the church, right? The church ought not to be run by the state. It ought not necessarily to be run by... Um, an elite group of leadership that separates the laity. It ought not to necessarily be um, a, a democratic vote. What it ought to be is the Holy Spirit, through the Word of God, leading and guiding the church. So again, although we spent a good chunk of uh, time there, uh, this is one perspective. And like I said, you need to be cautious about getting you know, 2,000 years down the road and then saying, oh, this must be what that meant, um, when in reality all of these periods of church history were... Uh, looking closely and expecting the imminent return of the Lord, right? And if this had been the clear intention, the clear prophetic intention of the Holy Spirit, why bother looking for the imminent return of the Lord if you hadn't made your way through all these periods of history? So to be taken with a grain of salt, but it is an interesting kind of framework with which to look at uh, church history. What I really want to focus on today is the idea of overcoming, overcoming our circumstances, overcoming the world around us, and each each of these seven letters to the churches, uh, the Spirit of God will tell them to uh, that there's a reward for overcoming or for conquering. We're going to look at two of those today. So beginning in Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. This is a letter to the church in Ephesus. It says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, The words of him who hold the seven stars in his right hand, who walk among the seven golden lampstands. Now, the word angel here, I had joked with a few 
uh, people last week that I would have it clearly explained and beyond a question. Um, the word in the Greek can mean messenger or angel. If you look at the word in the Greek, there's no clear, uh, is this, you know, the, the angels that we think of floating around, flying, heaven, Michael, Gabriel, or is this just simply um, an elder or a speaker at a church? You would have to use the context of the passage to determine that. Uh, most translations say angel, and that's fine if you, if you want to believe that. Um, it makes a little more sense to me that it would be a minister at the church there that would be delivering this message. Could it be both? Absolutely, it could be both. Sure. Each church could have a guardian angel of sorts assigned to it, and um, the pastor or the, the elder of that church, the bishop, the, the, the leadership there, could be receiving this letter, and the angel is getting the, the notification through the Spirit of God here as well. Uh, not worth getting hung up on. You can glean the, the truths of the message regardless. So for our purposes, I'm going to typically understand this as a, a, an elder or a messenger at that church that John is writing these letters to, to then speak and teach to that congregation there. Uh, as we read in the first chapter, the stars that are mentioned here, the seven stars in his right hand represent those messengers, and the lampstands represent the seven churches that are being written to. Verse 2, I know your works your toil or your labor, and your patient endurance, your perseverance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. When we read this, I know your works. That sounds very positive, right? I know your works. Um, I think a better understanding when the Lord says this to several of the churches, I know your works, is more the idea that nothing escapes his, his knowledge. He knows absolutely all of the works, right? In chapter 3 uh, to Sardis, um, the Lord says, I know your works. Um, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Well, that doesn't really sound like good works to me. I, I, I could be a little bit off on that, but if he says, I know your works and you have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead... Well, I think the better understanding here is that God knows absolutely the innermost workings of each church, regardless of what it looks like on the outside. He knows those, he knows those works intimately. But he also says, I know of your toil. And the word here ha- carries the idea of a fatiguing, exhausting labor. And he knows of their patient endurance. Now, they were in a very pagan area, Asia Minor. They were surrounded by a lot of negative influences. And, and we'll see some of these churches over the next few weeks kind of got carried away by some of those things, even perhaps here in Ephesus. But for the most part, he commends them for their patient endurance and how they cannot bear with evil people and how they were testing those who were found to be false, right? There's a lack of testing false apostles, false preachers and teachers here to not here. Well, the Lord not here, but in the church at large today, right? Many false teachers who run these massive ministries, mega churches and things like that, that are rising to popularity because people aren't testing them against the word of God. And uh, that seems more and more rare in the church, right? I, when, when I speak with unbelievers and um, mention things of, of, of scripture, often uh, reference will be made to people like Joel Osteen, I'm like, oh, a Christian like Joel Osteen, or oh, I'm reading Joel Osteen's book, or things like that, right? And that's just one example. There's many, many false heretical teachers and and, and preachers out today. 
Um, but the Ephesians were doing a good job of testing those people out. Um, what that looked like, I'm not sure, uh, but they were questioning those people and, and making note of them and, and not letting them slip through the cracks. And in verse 3, he says, I know you are patiently enduring and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Now, again, the word in, chapter, in verse 2, toil, it means an exhausting, a fatiguing labor. But then here it says, you have not grown weary. D.L. Moody uh, is quoted to have said uh, when he was very, very busy with lots and lots of ministry and he was getting home exhausted um, and his family was telling him to take a break from all this ministerial work. And he was, you know, barely sleeping and, and, and really feeling the effects of all the work. And he, he told his family that he grows weary in the work, but not of the work. Right, So that is something we need to be very careful as a church body and as individuals to be aware of. Right, uh, Often we're fatigued, overwhelmed, stressed, life is getting in our way. But are we begrudgingly doing the work of God? Are we weary of God's work? Are we weary because of the effort and the energy that the Spirit is allowing us to put forth in the work? So to grow weary in the work... Not a problem. To grow weary of the work is a problem. And it seems to me that that is God's uh, commendation to them, that although they are laboring and toiling and persevering and enduring and bearing up, they're not growing weary. Verse 4, And at the same time as they are not growing weary, he gives a warning or a rebuke even. Verse 4, But I have this against you, that you have abandoned or forsaken or left the love you had at first, abandoned, turned away from. Um, again, why was this? Was it the all, all of these outside influences? Was it um, some being drawn away by those false apostles that were being cast out? It was something that diminished the sincerity of their love, right? Um, love that is is heartfelt. Um, and motivating and spontaneous, right? A sincere, enthusiastic, excited love for God is what carries us through uh, ministry. Right? We hear examples about um, love. We, we use marriage as a good example of this all the time, right? Where if, if we're doing something for our spouse, is it out of, uh, you know, what's the word? Out of obligation or is it out of love, right? If your significant other or your parent or your sibling or anyone does something for you because they feel obligated, it doesn't really mean much to you, right? But when they do something out of love, it actually has value and worth. And that's what we see throughout scripture, that love, right? First uh, Corinthians 13, Paul talks about if I have not love, right? That's 1 Corinthians 13. Yes. Uh, if I have not love, I am, I am nothing. I, am, I gain nothing. I'm a noisy gong, right? I can do all of these things and I can look really good and I can even maybe achieve things uh, to the outside eye. But if I have no love, I am, uh, I am nothing. And so that sort of seems to be what's going on here, right? He sees that he, God acknowledges their toil and their their labor and they're not growing weary, but something is lacking in the, the sincerity and the authenticity of the love that they had uh, for the Lord, the love that they had at first. So what does he tell them to do in verse 5? Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. 
fallen. Fallen from what? Right? Is there, is there a concern that these believers might be falling from the grace of God? That they might be losing their salvation? Removed? Uh, again, is this, what is this, removed from the book of life? Is this removed from uh, access into heaven? Well, I would suggest to you that the fall here is simply what the context context suggests, that they had fallen away from the love that they had for God, and that the, the lampstand being removed is a reference to the, a, a threat to the church itself, not necessarily the salvation of an individual within it, but rather that the church itself could be eliminated, squashed, and removed if they would continue to drift away from the love that they had for God. Ephesians 1, right? This is a letter that was actually written to this church. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory, right? That is the security that we have in, in, in the gospel and in, in the salvation that we've received in Christ. For those of us who have put our faith in, in the Lord Jesus' sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins, we are sealed by the Holy Spirit, guaranteed. That inheritance is guaranteed. There's no falling from grace. There's no removal from salvation. So in this context, that fall represents uh, that, that distance they had from the sincere love they started out with and that removal is the threat to the church. So, putting those two together, remembering and repenting is how we can continue to stoke that love because falling from that excited, sincere, passionate love is so easy, right? Uh, I know often I would attend, I remember more so in my uh, teens and early college years, we would attend various conferences, Acquire the Fire and the Passion Conference, and boy, you'd walk out of those things like ready to just witness to everyone on the street, and you were so fired up, but those that just fades so quickly. Um, and that perhaps was because it was based on exciting music and, and boisterous speakers, right? But But the Holy Spirit here gives the formula for how to maintain that sincere love. It's to remember, right? Sort of like what we do here um, each Sunday morning, right? Remember what it is that the Lord has done for us, but also to repent, right? To always be turning away, right? Ephesus, again, here in Asia Minor, surrounded by the world and secular influence and secular uh, um, allure, uh, needed to turn away from that and refocus their efforts and remember the Lord Jesus so that they can continue to have that sincere love that would influence their works and continue to uh, give them the strength to not grow weary. So to each of us individually, as we'll see here in a coming verse, uh, uh, as these letters are going out to the churches that the Spirit of God would still say, each of you, he who has an ear, listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. So this is to each of us as well, that we would keep a sincere love for the Lord by remembering Him and by constantly turning from the world to Him. Verse 6, Yet this you have, Right? So he says, you, you toil, you endure, you um, persevere, you do excellent things, but you're falling. You've fallen from this, the, the love that you had for me at first. Yet, and then he goes back to another positive for the church of Ephesus, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. There's no clear uh, reference that I could find in Scripture to who exactly this group was. Uh, it could be a symbolic name for those who wanted to introduce uh, 
historically it seems like licentiousness, right? Kind of sexual promiscuity into the church. I think uh, one commentary suggested it was a group that said you could only understand sin by experiencing it. So they said, let's go, you know, this is of the body, it's not of the spirit. So let's put our body through all these sins so that we understand them. Um, The word itself breaks down into kind of the meaning of conquering people, right? So some would also suggest that this was an early attempt at creating a governmental church structure. Um, And it's also possible that there was a bad guy named Nicholas that started a cult. Um, There actually was a bad guy named Nicholas of Antioch. But in any case, it was a, a teaching that was the Lord hated and the church of Ephesus also hated it. Um, And he commends them for that. And then in verse 7, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It says, to the one who conquers. A lot of translations will say overcomes. And that's a good word. That's the one we're going to kind of look at. Overcomes. I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. He who has an ear, right? This letter to the local church, but it's being heard by everyone in the church. And now it was added to our, it's been added to our scripture so that we can each hear it as well um, and apply it to our, our churches and ourselves individually. And the promise is for one who overcomes or one who conquers. He will give to eat the tree of life. Some, some translations there you might have to grant the privilege to eat from the tree of life or to grant the right to eat from the tree of life. And I would suggest the, the right to eat from the tree of life might be the best understanding there. Um, there is a paper, I forget the author, written about this just this word. And I think the conclusion was a good understanding of the word is repayment. This is those who have overcome, which we'll look at what that means in a minute. What does it mean to overcome? Now have the right to eat from the tree of life, right? This is not something that can come and go and be taken away. This is the right granted to eat from the tree of life. So what does it mean then to overcome? Well, let's look at some other writings uh, from John uh, in the book of 1 John, which as far as I understand, there's some confusion in in, uh, Christendom about which John wrote what, but as far as I understand, this is the same author of the book of Revelation. First John chapter 5, I'll read the first five verses there, um, and I want us to think about a couple things. That The church of Ephesus was told that they had fallen from their love, right? They were working, laboring, toiling, all these things, uh, but they had fallen from their first love, okay? That's one concept I want us to bear in mind, fallen from love, toiling, and laboring, um, but also this idea of overcoming. What does it mean to overcome, right? The, the verse 7 in, in Revelation 2 says, The one who overcomes, I will grant to eat the tree of life, right? To me, that sounds very much like salvation. So if there's another requirement for salvation, what do I have to overcome to earn salvation? Well, I'm going to suggest to you from 1 John 5 here that that's what it means. Overcoming is the, the acceptance of the Lord Jesus Christ and putting our faith in him who has already overcome the world so let's think about these two things love uh, a lack of love and toil and labor and and what does it mean to overcome and how does that relate to our salvation first john 5 the first five verses everyone who believes that jesus is the christ has been born of god and everyone who loves the father loves whoever has been born of him 
By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So here, when, when we go back to our, our letters to the churches here in Revelation, and it says, to the one who overcomes, right? And, and as far as, as I can extend and, and look through the scriptures, overcoming is that being born of God, that putting our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, separating us from the world, overcoming the world through our relationship to Christ. That is the one who will eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God, right? The eternal life offered to us, uh, the one who conquers, the one who overcomes. But also in there, we saw this idea uh, uh, this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome, right? Obeying God and working and toiling and laboring, not being a burden is connected with the love of God, right? That excited, uh, sincere, spontaneous love of God is going to be the thing that makes us not grow weary, right? To give us the, the strength to continue on without um, becoming weary of the work of God. We already talked about that, that, that granting the right, right? If we've put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that is a sealing of the Holy Spirit, a, a permanent locked in. We are now uh, justified. We have the righteousness of God. It is our right now because of what Christ has done on the cross for us. And in verse 8, we begin the second letter to the church in Smyrna. It says, verse 8, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Now, as we see uh, from verse 1 to verse 8, there's a little bit of a different description uh, of the spirit uh, of who's writing to the church here. Um, and all of these, I believe all seven churches have a little bit of a different description of the Lord Jesus, but it all draws from chapter 1. So why this description here? Um, the words of the first and last who died and came to life. Well, let's read the rest of the, the short letter here to Smyrna. Verse 9. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So Smyrna was a persecuted church. And this letter doesn't say your persecution is quickly coming to an end, but rather encourages them, despite this persecution, to be faithful, right? So it's very easy, and be faithful unto death, right? If I told you here to be faithful unto death, uh, without using the word of God, if I was saying, oh, just, you know, keep on keeping on until death. That's easy to say, right? Very easy to say, oh, you know, keep going until it kills you. Well, who has the authority to say that? Someone who has died and come back, right? Who better to encourage the church than the one who has died and come back to life? This persecuted church at risk of all sorts of, of martyrdom um, 
is now receiving a message from the one who died and came back, the first and the last. Such an appropriate uh, facet of the Lord Jesus to encourage them here as he says now, be faithful unto death. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, back in verse 9, but you are rich, right? They were rich in, uh, in the ways that mattered, I would suggest to you, right? In the, the salvation that they had in the Lord Jesus, despite their uh, persecution and maybe material poverty. Uh, and the slander of those who say they are not Jews, uh, but are a synagogue, or, or who say they are Jews and are not, um, but are a synagogue of Satan. So it seems there was a lot of uh, national Jews uh, that bitterly blasphemed the Lord Jesus and, and opposed Christianity, and they're described as a synagogue of Satan. I don't know that this would be a very a specific synagogue perhaps it is there might be something in church history about that but to me it just sort of seems to be those uh, oppressive national jews that hated christ and hated christianity uh, verse 10 do not fear what you are about to suffer behold the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and for 10 days you will have tribulation well oftentimes in in prophecy right 10 days that's you can some bad stuff can happen in 10 days but that's not very long right but oftentimes in prophecy a day doesn't equal necessarily one day. Um, and if you were to ascribe to the uh, chart that we looked at earlier, where Smyrna represents sort of a persecuted period in church history, I saw a few different uh, conflicting, uh, but suggestions of, of 10 uh, emperors or, or rulers that were particularly bloody and violent um, to the church. Could it be a reference to 10 rulers, to 10 kind of uh, uh, kings? It could be. Um, in any case, their, their task and their goal through those 10 days was to remain faithful. And there was a reward promised for this. It says, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. In scripture, there's a few references to this. Um, I think there's a few more in Revelation and I believe in James, uh, where persevering through trials and persecutions and tribulations seems to be, um, uh, or to give this reward, a crown of life. Now this, I don't see anywhere in scripture that the crown of life is salvation. It seems to be a reward for believers who are, are persecuted, um, perhaps exclusively to death, um, but in any case, enduring trial and severe persecution to merit this reward, a crown of life. And then verse 11, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. The second death uh, is very clearly explained in Revelation as the lake of fire, the eternity of separation from uh, Christ as our advocate, right? Um, I've heard often people say, right, uh, hell is the, the separation uh, separation from God. Uh, I don't think that's quite the right understanding. I, in, in the Psalms, we know that even in the depths of Sheol, that God is there. I would say a better understanding of hell would be... Um, or, or I've, I've heard, I had a professor in college and he said, uh, heaven is the fullness of God with Jesus as your advocate and hell is the fullness of God without Jesus as your advocate, right? So it is the full, unadulterated wrath of God poured out on um, those who rejected and scorned him in this life, the second death, that eternal lake of fire. Overcoming. So both of these churches so far, and we'll see more in the, in the coming weeks, um, on, on different uh, rewards promised to those who conquer, those who overcome. But I want to uh, 
tie things up with this idea, that, um, thinking of that, that picture of the crown of life for those who suffer, um, and this idea of the second death. Another quote from D.L. Moody. He said, Those who are born once die twice. But those who are born twice die once. Now, for if, if we uh, are raptured from this earth, we might not even have to die once. Um, but right, this idea of being born again, that is, um, right, even in, in the passage we just read, 1 John 5, right? Um, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, right? Putting our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is our second birth. It is that being born again, and Jesus would say, well, you must be born again. And this is uh, what, what, what saves us and separates us from that second death, right? So that, that being born again saves us from the second death. Being only born once, and we have a second death um, on our agenda uh, if we do not overcome through our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But I also couldn't help uh, but think of the the crown of life. And this drew my mind um, to think of other crowns in the scripture. And, and the one that stood out to me as I was considering this was the crown of thorns that the Lord Jesus had pressed into his head as he was crucified um, and killed, right? As he was uh, laboring and, and persevering and enduring and overcoming the world for us, right? In John 16, um, He says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world, right? This is the words of the Lord Jesus, that he has overcome the world on the cross with the crown of thorns, right, pressed into his head. uh, A true king, a king over the whole uh, world and universe, uh, mocked with a crown of thorns, so that we might have the Holy Spirit, so that we can overcome so that we can endure, um, whether that be secular influence all around us, like we saw in the church of Ephesus, or whether that be real, true persecution, right? We, we have some, uh, in the States, it's usually very relative, minor persecutions that we experience here. But even up to and including death, we now have the Spirit of God that allows us to overcome, so that uh, because of the sacrifice he made with, with, with that uh, crown of thorns that we can overcome all the way to the point of death and merit ourselves uh, the crown of life, that we can uh, in eternity then cast that crown down again before the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, so bear that in mind as we continue uh, looking at the uh, churches coming up in these these next few weeks that... Um, each of them would, would have a, an encouragement for overcoming, right? Smyrna is also one of the only two churches that didn't have a rebuke to it, right? Seven ch- churches, written letters. Um, each of them rebuked for something. Smyrna, the persecuted church, doesn't seem to be rebuked for anything. The, the church thrives with persecution, right? We fear it, you know, here in our comfortable uh, little bubbles. But it is, it is persecution that seems to grow and expand and motivate the church, right? And as much as Satan tries to persecute, right, God turns that uh, for his own purposes, right? The, the, what's the quote? The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, right? Um, and we can see that again, whether, you, whether we tie these seven churches to those periods in history or not, um, we can look as persecution wanes, so does the church, Right, it gets softer, and people come in and interfere with it, and, and create other 
systems and hierarchies and, and problems, right? So we don't necessarily pray that we would be persecuted, but we, we ought to pray that we would have sincere love and uh, that we would be motivated to obey and overcome without persecution. Because if that's what the church needs, then um, so be it. Um, but I, I pray that each of us would uh, apply these things to our own uh, individual walks, right? That we would uh, seek to have sincere love and to overcome uh, the, the influences around us and to withstand any persecutions that we might uh, experience in this life. And it could get worse than what we have now, right? A little bit of mocking, maybe a couple restrictions here and there is kind of all that we've seen so far um, in the States in recent years, but it could get much worse. But regardless, as the Lord Jesus said, take heart for he has overcome the world. Let's go ahead and close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for uh, your word and the encouragement that you give us um, in it to be overcomers, to be born again, to be blood-bought and sealed with the Holy Spirit uh, so that we can be overcomers. Help us not to be drawn away and distracted by the things of this world, whether that be uh, good things that keep us too busy um, or whether that be sinful things that may distract us and and, uh, cause us to grow weary of the work of the Lord. No, help us to be uh, those who patiently endure, those who persevere, those who uh, bear up uh, for your name's sake, um, overcoming uh, day and day and... uh, as a church, that we would encourage one another to do this as well. Um, we would test one another and, and test uh, those around us that we would be doing all things that honor you and glorify you and um, not allowing influences, negative influences, right? We don't want to, if a letter was written to us as a church or as an individual, Lord, we don't want um, to see rebuke for these things that we would be so ashamed of, like a, a lack of love, Lord, um, but that we would be uh, able to to be good and faithful servants overcoming through the Holy Spirit that's been given to us. Uh, We ask all these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.